Welcome to the Centre for Investment Excellence, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. The Centre for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is the final episode of a four-part Beta Strategies series titled Factor Investing Through the Cycle and is for institutional and professional investors. During today's episode, we cover important topics such as factor timing and crowding and explain the potential investment implications for factor-based investing. I'm George Blake, a consultant advisor within our North America institutional business, and I'll be your moderator for today's episode. Joining me for our discussion is Yazan Ramahi, CIO for our Quantitative Beta Strategies Group, and Garrett Norman, an investment specialist also within our Quantitative Beta Strategies team within JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Centre for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Great. So, Garrett, let's kick off with why do factors persist over time? As we've discussed throughout this podcast series, the term factor represents any characteristic that can be used to explain or describe investment returns. They're backed by economic rationale, and it's these economic drivers that provide us with our confidence that these factors will persist over time. And Yaz, given your background in academia, perhaps you could elaborate a little further on what these economic drivers are. So there are three broad categories or economic drivers behind risk premium. The first is a risk-based argument. So in other words, you're taking on some form of economic risk and you're rewarded for that. Equity markets being a good example, you're taking on the risk of the volatility of the markets and you're compensated for taking on that risk. Another example that fits in the risk bucket is the size premium, which is related to the fact that smaller companies are more highly levered and therefore should exhibit a higher return in order to attract investors. Another class of economic explanation behind these risk premia is behavioral or cognitive biases. One example here is price momentum, which is a common behavioral bias. And then the third category is actually structural-based factors. In this case, these are where investors may be constrained from exploiting return opportunities. These constraints can take the form of regulation, market segmentation, or mandate limitations. The outperformance of low volatility or low beta stocks is one that falls into this category. And maybe just to add to this, in addition to these economic drivers themselves, the factors have been proven empirically to exist and persist out of sample, both across different time periods, different asset classes, and across different markets. Garrett, how long can a factor cycle last? So as Yaz mentioned, factors serve to compensate investors for explicit risks. And often these are risks that other investors or a broad investor base either cannot, should not, or often choose not to take on. These factor cycles can go through very long periods of underperformance. By our measures, the average factor cycle, which we define as the time it takes for a factor valuation to move from one standard deviation to one standard deviation cheap, is roughly three years for factors like equity momentum, value, quality, and size. And it's important to highlight that it's natural for factor cycles to go much longer than that, and for individual factors to underperform for more than a decade, if not even longer than that. And what are your current thoughts on the current drawdown in the value factor? Obviously, it's been a particularly challenging period. When might this rebound? To Garrett's point, factor cycles can be very long. While the current drawdown in the value factor has indeed been painful, it is not entirely abnormal. In fact, by our measure of the factor, we are in the second worst drawdown dating back to 1990. And the drawdown during the dot-com bubble was actually twice as bad. In addition, 
when you actually look at whether the drawdown has actually come from idiosyncratic risk or whether it's actually pure factor risk, you can see that it's across definition of value, across regions, across sectors. So it is a genuine value drawdown. And maybe just to build on what I was saying earlier in terms of the length of those factor cycles, a study of Fama French data going back to the 1920s highlights that their definition of the value factor has suffered negative returns in 14% of rolling 10-year periods and suffered negative returns in 6% of rolling 20-year periods. These periods, which obviously can be very long in nature, in our minds is exactly why investors are being rewarded for their exposure to value over time. It's just really a difficult factor to own. And what's actually interesting about that is that when investors look at the equity premium, if you think about the 2000s, equity returns didn't really add anything. In fact, you know, had a very strong drawdown and pretty much zero return over the decade. And yet no one questions whether the equity risk premium has disappeared because they understand that that's the risk you take on for taking on this exposure. And the cycle we are seeing in value is common to one that repeats the equity risk premium itself. So what could be a catalyst for the reversal? What should we look out for? When you think about what might cause a value turn, I think you have to think about two things. I mean, clearly, earnings growth disappointment would be one, right? To a certain extent, what we've been seeing is a period where growth stocks have been doing extremely well and expectations have been getting loftier. As you see these growth estimates being missed, you'll potentially see a turn to value. For example, the Netflix miss on projected subscriber growth is an example. And once we see more of this, you could potentially see a turn to value. The other thing to bear in mind also is rising interest rates. Two things would happen as a result of rising rates. One is investors start to discount growth stocks more aggressively, and that could certainly help value. But more importantly, as rates rise and companies start to have to refinance their debt at higher rates, that will cause overlevered companies that have actually benefited from the period of low interest rates to actually start to have a more difficult time, and that will certainly accelerate a turn to value. Now, Garrett mentioned that value tends to act like a coiled spring, and generally one should feel a lot more comfortable about a value drawdown because you know that that will actually mean revert and it'll come back. For example, if you have a momentum drawdown, you don't necessarily know how that reversal might come to play. Something I guess we mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts is just that the returns to the value factor also tend to come in bunches. So while difficult to forecast exactly when some of those catalysts would occur, we know that historically, dating back to 1990, the top 20 months of performance for the value factor account for around 75% of that factor's cumulative performance. And if history is any guide to future performance, we also know that when the value factor is this cheap, that returns tend to be two or three orders of magnitude larger than the average return for the value factor at this point in its path. Okay. Sticking on the theme of potential returns, as investors crowd into this space, can these factors potentially be arbitraged out? Will the returns persist over time or will they likely decrease? So I think this really comes back to the economic rationale that drive factors. As we mentioned, one of the classifications, risk-based factors, these must explicitly provide compensation or outperform over time to attract investors. At any given time, though, a risk-based factor could become cheaper expensive. This would be similar to investors moving in and out of equity markets, where the equity risk premium can become expensive or cheap. Similarly, to take that size example that Yaz mentioned earlier, 
if a significant amount of investors move into small cap stocks, the excess returns of small cap stocks could diminish to the point that there's really no longer a premium over larger cap stocks. It's really at this point that where there is no premium, investors would deallocate, which really reinvigorates the factor cycle itself. So in other words, we think that for risk-based factors, investor crowding can make the factor expensive at times, but cannot arbitrage it out over the long term. Maybe taking the second camp of factors, the behavioral-based factors, here I think again it's important to understand the driver of the return itself. In a factor like momentum, momentum investing by definition results in a positive feedback loop. Increases in price attract more investors, lead to greater allocations, and ultimately better performance. So in other words, investor behavior can actually increase the momentum effect on a short-term basis. Of course, what eventually happens is that too many investors will have solely allocated on the basis of past returns, and a change in sentiment or unexpected losses could lead to a large drawdown, just if there's an imbalance in the strength of the investor base. So for a factor like momentum, we actually think that crowding could lead to higher returns in the short term, albeit at the cost of higher volatility over the long term, and perhaps increased negative skew. The last of the categories, the so-called structural factors, these are ones that I think we need to keep our eye on a bit more closely. Because they rely on market constraints, because they're structural in nature, they have the weakest form of persistence. And if market segmentation or regulation were to change over time, there's certainly the potential that a structural factor could cease to exist. And this is really one that I think all investors should closely monitor to make sure that when they're allocating to structural capitals that it is a productive opportunity for their capital. So how does one measure factor crowdedness? When one is looking to determine factor crowdedness, there are two main aspects one should look out for. The first is factor valuation spreads. To do this, what we look at is the spread between the highest ranked stocks by a particular measure, say value, compared to the lowest ranked stocks. This spread is then compared to its history to determine whether the factor is cheap or expensive. Tight spread relative to history could suggest factor crowding. If we look today, for example, the difference between cheapest value stocks and most expensive growth stocks is actually nearly one to two standard deviations cheap by most measures. In other words, this suggests the value is not at all crowded at present. The second component to look out for to determine factor crowdedness is correlation amongst factors. If the daily correlation amongst factors rises, this could also be another indicator. For example, we saw this in the summer of 2007 when correlation amongst factors jumped to over 0.8 over a short period of time. This was very much a crowding event. In contrast, today, daily correlation amongst factors is negligible, suggesting no real crowdedness. So, yes, can one time factors? And if so, do we time factors? When we think about factor timing, there are two aspects to that question. One is top-down, where you're actually looking to map the factors to the business cycle. And the other one is bottom-up, where you're actually looking at factor spread information itself, like we just discussed, and whether that can be used for factor timing. If we take the business cycle example first, while certain factors do appear to perform better during certain phases of the cycle, for example, value outperforms quality and growth during recessionary periods, a limited sample of distinctive cycles and market environments makes it very difficult to find statistically significant empirical relationships. So while this potentially can be done qualitatively, it is actually very difficult to be done quantitatively. 
The second component of actually using the bottom-up information, the factor spread information, there is actually evidence that does suggest that the factor spread information does indicate future outperformance or underperformance. So in other words, if the factor is cheap, that factor may be entering a period where it will outperform and vice versa. The difficulty there, of course, is around turnover, that actually one has to trade off turnover against using that factor spread information. So again, it suggests that it's information that can be used in a qualitative perspective, but very difficult to incorporate quantitatively. Thank you, Yaz. So Garrett, how are you seeing clients and investment consultants thinking about factor timing? Given the difficulties in factor timing and a lot of the issues that Yaz brought up, I think that's really why we haven't seen clients or consultants try to engage in this practice just yet. It's hard enough to try to call something like equity market beta, let alone a factor which is by definition less sensitive to economic environments or business cycles. And even with the recent underperformance of value, we've seen most investors keep their exposure to this factor constant rather than give up on it, or actually what one perhaps would want to do would even be doubling down at this point. Great, thank you. So just continuing on from that, as factors become more widely understood, what are the potential investment implications? We do believe that factors will continue to provide persistent sources of return over time, but there are a few elements related to the accessibility of factor strategies that might change the overall dynamics of factor investing over time. One of these could be factor cyclicality. So just as investors are in liquid form able to move in and out of strategies, the cycle between a factor performing well and poorly might pick up over time. In addition, having that liquid access across a wide base of factors and across a wide set of investors might increase the correlation across factors. So we might start to see something like value and momentum move closer together than they have in the past despite having different economic drivers, just because investors are buying and selling them in packages. And then last, we could see a greater correlation between factors and traditional risk assets. Again, I think these are return sources that historically had been available in less liquid forms, often in many cases in hedge funds that had lockups on investor access. So just the ability of investors to deallocate during risky market environments could increase the linkage to traditional equity markets. Yes, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I mean, this past February was an interesting test case on the concern around factor crowding, because as we saw, a broad range of factors sold off at the same time as the markets sold off, leading to a lot of people suggesting that perhaps this was actually a case of correlation and a case of the dynamics that Garrett was just mentioning taking place. But in fact, when you actually look into the detail, what you find is that on a daily basis, the correlations were actually completely asynchronous. And so in other words, the factors did not really exhibit correlations at all. In fact, the average pairwise correlation across value, momentum and quality remained at or below zero. We mentioned before that a similar scenario back in the summer of 2007 that's been referred to as the quant crisis, that was actually a period where you did have correlations jump up. In fact, the daily correlations then reached 0.85 when the factors experienced sharp losses. So that was actually a true example of factor crowdedness. But what we've actually been through in February this year, contrary to what some people have assumed, was not actually an example of factor crowdedness. 
Now, while we believe that fact dynamics will change over time, the lack of correlation across factors in February at least provides us with the confidence that we are not yet at that point where factor crowdedness is an issue. In fact, if anything, today factors are actually quite attractively priced. Yeah, I think to that point, if there had been a real crowding in the factor space, I don't think we would have seen a well-known factor like value go through the stretch of performance that it has in recent years. Thank you both very much for joining us on the Centre for Investment Excellence. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the JP Morgan Centre for Investment Excellence. This episode was the final episode in a four-part Beta Strategies series. Our next series will cover multi-asset investing starting on the 16th of August. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities on their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and available on our website. Recorded on the 18th of July, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 
201-120-355E. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited. In Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.